Well, you may have heard of that famous self-help book by Dale Carnegie, How to Win Friends and Influence People. I wonder if this morning in John 6, Jesus is giving us a lesson in how to lose friends and alienate people. If you remember last week, we were looking at John 6, and here's Jesus feeding this great crowd of 5,000 people, and that, coupled with all his miracles of healing, has made him the most popular show in town. People are coming everywhere to see Jesus. If he were running for prime minister, he'd win by a landslide. The people think, this guy, he can offer the ideal welfare state, you know, bread on command. And so if you look back at verse 15 in your Bibles, the people, they wanted to make Jesus their king. And in verse 26, Jesus starts to preach to this crowd of keen followers. And you think, this will be amazing. It's the great miracle worker with this massive crowd, so keen to see him, the best preacher the world has ever seen. And his message goes down like a lead balloon. By verse 66, it says even his disciples were deserting him. The theme of this passage is the rejection of life. And you have to wonder, what's going on? What's going on? Why would John include such large-scale rejection of Jesus by this Jewish people that he says at the end of the book he's trying to persuade to believe in Jesus. It's because rejection is a reality in the Christian life. It's been a reality all through history, and many of you will feel that reality week by week in your own lives. Rejection is a reality. And the big message of this passage, in face of this rejection, is that God is still in charge. God is still in charge. Jesus still holds out the offer of the bread of life. And so when the crowds of people reject Jesus and we can feel small or intimidated, when we're perhaps even tempted to join the crowd and walk away, we can remember what Peter says in verse 68. There's nowhere else to go. You alone, Jesus, you have the words of eternal life. So let's pray God would continue to teach us through his word. Our Father in heaven, we do praise you for your son, Jesus, the one whose words are spirit and life. Father, we desperately need you to work in us, to work among us, because we know we cannot come to Christ unless it's given by you. So please, Father, we pray you'd teach us now, change us, Help us to treasure Christ and even in the face of rejection to hold on to him because he is the one with the words of eternal life. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So you know where we're going. We've got three headings this morning and they all have a word that begin with the letter R. So the first heading is the crowd rejects Jesus. The second heading is Jesus reinforces his offer of life. And the third heading is is that the Father reigns in salvation. So our first heading is the crowd rejects Jesus. If you open up your passages in front of us, verse 41, it starts with the Jews grumbling because of what Jesus said about being the bread of life. They're like the Israelites grumbling in the wilderness. Here's Jesus with this amazing news, verse 40. He says, everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And how did the crowd respond? They grumble. And what do they grumble about? They grumble about Jesus' identity and they grumble about his instruction. 
And those are always the two things that people will reject about Jesus, his identity and his instruction. In verse 42, it says, they don't accept Jesus' identity as the one who came from heaven. They say, we know this guy, he's not from heaven. He's Joe and Mary's kid. I took my chair in for repair at Joe's joinery a while back, and this is the bloke who fixed it. How can he, how can he say that he came down from heaven? Their familiarity with Jesus meant they wouldn't acknowledge him for who he truly is. It's similar today with someone who might have grown up going through church or maybe having scripture in their school. They've heard it all before. They don't want to hear it again. They certainly don't want to hear Jesus' claims of authority over their life. And then in verse 52, they reject Jesus' instruction or his teaching. Look at verse 52. It says, The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? They're mocking Jesus at this point. How can he give us his flesh to eat? There's not enough of him to go around. When Jesus has already explained that it's not literally eating his flesh. Remember in verse 35, eating means coming to Jesus and drinking means believing in him. They're twisting his words so that they have an excuse to reject him. And again, we continue to see this very thing today. You know how people will find a line from Scripture that they find offensive? They don't try to understand it properly. They just use it as their excuse not to engage with everything else that Jesus says. It's nothing new. People have rejected Jesus like this from way back in John 6. And then John 6, verse 66. It's a terribly sad sentence, so perhaps it's fitting that it's 666. It says, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. They turned back and no longer walked with him. They can't handle Jesus' claims. They reject him. In verse 71, even one of the 12 will betray him. So do you see in this passage, it's a downward slope of constant rejection The Jews grumbling, verse 41, disputing, verse 52, disciples grumbling and taking offense, verse 61, deserting, verse 66, and finally betraying, verse 71. Over and over again, we see Jesus rejected. It can be hard when people reject you, particularly those close to you. It can be a comfort to know that our Lord Jesus was rejected before us. But there's another slightly more controversial point of application here. And that's, do you notice the people, when they find the teaching too hard, they walk away from Jesus? This might sound strange coming from a preacher, but maybe there are people here who have been listening to Jesus for a long time and actually reject what he says. And maybe it's time to walk away. It's been a huge problem that the church has had the past few decades is people saying they're Christians but rejecting what Jesus says. So they'll go to church most week, they'll recite the creed, they'll tick the Anglican box on the census, but then they'll reject the parts of the Bible that they don't like. Now, I don't respect this crowd's decision to walk away from Jesus, but I do respect that at least they don't keep pretending to follow Jesus when they don't. A huge problem with the Anglican church around the world is that it's full of people who pretend to follow Jesus when they reject 
his teaching and they stick around for whatever it is. It could be prestige or property or power or popularity, whatever it is, when it would actually be much better if they just quit the make-believe, say they reject Jesus and walk away. I say that with a heavy heart because I would much prefer if there's anyone sitting in this building who's behaving like that with Jesus, I would much prefer that you'd acknowledge your sin, humble yourself under Jesus' teaching instead of just picking and choosing it, and with Peter say, where else have I to go? Jesus, he has the words of eternal life. So that's our first heading. The crowd rejects Jesus. Our second heading is Jesus reinforces his offer of life. Over and over again in this passage, Jesus reinforces what he said back in verse 35. I am the bread of life. Look at verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Verse 50, if you eat of Jesus, you will not die. Verse 51, if you eat of Jesus, you will live forever. Verse 54, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. He says, verse 49, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. Jesus says, if you come to me, you will live. Jesus is reinforcing his offer of eternal life. And we really do need this. Look at verse 53. Jesus says, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. We may think we're alive, and we've used this illustration before, but we're really just like cut flowers. We look pretty for a while, but really there's no life in us. We wither and die. You only need to look back on history to know this. Every single person who's gone before, they've died. Billions of people. And yet it seems like everyone in our city carries on like death's not really a problem. And Jesus is saying, I'm here. I've got the answer. I am the bread of life that can make you live forever. Like I want you to imagine if I were able to give you a pill. I said, this pill, it means you won't die. That would be pretty amazing. Jesus is saying, I'll offer you something even better. Not a pill so that you can keep on living in this sin-stained world, this broken world, which really would be a form of hell to keep on living in this world forever. But he says, I'll offer you myself, my body broken, my blood spilled out, And that will be the bread of eternal life with God. Eat that and you will live forever. The question is, how do you eat Jesus' flesh? Last week, looking at chapter 6, over in the Sunday school, I heard from a Sunday school teacher that one of the kids in the year 5-6 group asked whether Jesus was telling the disciples to take out a knife and start kind of cutting off some of his skin. I want to be clear, that's not what he means in this passage. And you don't see Peter at the end of this passage picking up a knife to go at Jesus. That's not literal, nor is it eating the Lord's Supper. Jesus isn't speaking literally here. The easy way to see what he's saying is by noticing the parallels in verses 40 and 54. So look at those. Look at verse 40. Jesus says, Everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. 
Now look at verse 54 and notice the similarities. Jesus says, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. I hope you see the parallel there. So eating Jesus' flesh is the same as looking to him. Drinking Jesus' blood is the same as believing in him. So how do you eat and drink Jesus? It's by looking to him and believing in him for your eternal life. St. Augustine said, He who believes has already eaten. He who believes has already eaten. You look to Jesus' body broken for you on the cross and trust in that for your forgiveness and eternal life. Or the Anglican communion service puts it so well. You feed on Jesus not with your mouth, but you feed on Jesus in your heart by faith with thanksgiving. It's not a physical eating. If you trust in Jesus' body broken for you and his blood shed for you, then you have eternal life. And if you haven't done it yet, today is a great day to do it, to put your trust in Jesus for your forgiveness, to come to Jesus like Peter and say, I've got nowhere else to go. You are the one who has the words of eternal life. I was visiting one of our 5pm members in hospital this week. Uh, He's undergoing chemotherapy at the moment. And thankfully, the treatment's going well. But he said, you know, when you go through an experience like this, it does make you consider your mortality again. When you come to death, come close to death like that. And he says, these words of Jesus in John 6 are so precious. And, and he looks around and he thinks about death and he goes, where else really do I have to go? Jesus is the one with the words of eternal life. Anything else we try to get life from, it ultimately disappoints. Jesus is the one who gave his life rose to new life, and now gives life to us. So we've seen the crowd rejecting Jesus. We've seen Jesus reinforcing his offer of life. Our third and final heading is the Father reigning in salvation. Look at verse 44 with me. Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Uh, There are many who find this a hard saying because they worry that it robs human agency or freedom. But somehow, God's sovereignty can work with humans making real and responsible choices. And the logic of God's sovereignty in this verse, in verse 44, it's inescapable. The the first clause is a universal negative. No one can come to me. No one is able to come to me. That means that everyone in the world lacks the ability to come to Jesus to believe in Jesus. So if there were nothing else in this sentence, then we would all be completely lost on our way to hell. Just no hope for salvation. We're just as blind as the people in the passage. But thanks be to God, there is an exception to this negative universal. Do you see it there? It says, unless, unless, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. It's a strong word, drawing. It's actually the same word used in John 21.6 to talk about hauling in a net of fish. Or in Acts 21.30 when Paul was seized and he was drawn, he was dragged out of the temple. In the same way, Jesus is saying no one can genuinely come to him unless they are dragged by the Father. They can come come to Jesus in a superficial way like this crowd who wanted a bit of extra food but to genuinely come to Jesus, to trust him, to come to him on his own terms, 
that takes a miraculous work of the Father. It's actually a sad indictment on the human condition. This is how much we naturally don't even want Jesus or the life that he offers. And if you've been in the CDGs the past few weeks looking through Romans, you've seen how deep the sinfulness of man goes in Romans chapter 1. You know what Jesus is talking about. We're completely unable to come to the one who gives us life unless we're dragged by the Father. It's like if you can imagine a group of disobedient children kind of congregating around a big barrel of sherbet and they're just stuffing their faces with this sugary stuff. It doesn't give them any kind of satisfaction, doesn't give them any kind of fill. They get a moment of sweetness. That's what we're like with the trinkets of this world. And then imagine that just across the way there's this beautiful three-course meal, Michelin star restaurant quality, you know? And it takes one of their parents to come and drag them across from the barrel of sherbet and sit them down in front of the proper meal. That's what we need. Jesus says the only way we can come to him is if the Father drags us. And so if you have faith in Jesus, it's only because God has done a miraculous work in you to drag you from death to life. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. The second place we see the Father reigning in salvation is in verse 65. So have a look at it with me. Jesus says, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. So once again, we have the universal negative. No one can come to me. No one can come to me unless it is granted by the Father. I have a brother who's only 15 months younger than me. And uh, we had a very similar upbringing. I love him very much, but we were in the same family. I had the same si- we had the same sister, same parents, lived in the same house, same neighbourhood, same schools. We even lived in the same bedroom for most of my childhood. But sadly, my brother isn't, well, isn't yet a follower of Jesus, while I am. And you say, well, what's the difference? The difference isn't me, I'm no good. The difference is that God has graciously dragged me away from the barrel of sherbet and shown me the proper meal, Jesus Christ. Some people want to say that God does everything he, get, everything he can to save us, and then it's just left up to us to make the choice. These verses say no. Even coming to Jesus, even trusting in Jesus, even the choice that we make to say yes to Jesus, even that is only possible because it's given to us by the Father. It's completely a gift of God. No one is able to come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. So what do we do with this doctrine of God's sovereignty in salvation? Now, sadly, this is a doctrine that many Christians get caught up on and struggle with and even fight against God with. But that's not why Jesus was teaching it here. He was teaching it as an encouragement. So even the the early readers might have felt small and marginalized as a group of Christians, even though, as modern Christians, we can feel rejected by the elites of society and tempted, perhaps, to think we're crazy or foolish or even to walk away with the crowd. This is a reminder to say, no, we're not crazy. Actually, they're crazy for walking away. They're going down the path to death. And the only reason we're not is because the Father has been gracious to pull us away and put us on the path of life. 
Our natures are so fallen that we cannot come unless the Father does a miraculous work in each of us. If you trust in Jesus, as most of you do here today, this is cause for great thanks that God has brought you to Jesus. Even when people reject you, to be thankful that God has granted you to believe in Christ. And then to trust God with the people who might be rejecting us. To trust that if they are ultimately people belonging to Jesus, then God will draw them to him. And we can simply remain faithful to our task of telling the good news of the Saviour who's died for sin and risen for life. If you're a Christian, you will face rejection in this world. Maybe you're the only Christian in your family. You know, at the Christmas dinner, everyone looks at you as the religious nutter. And you're tempted sometimes to go along with them. But you stop and remember that your family doesn't have the words of eternal life. Jesus does. And you pray that the Father would graciously give them faith in Jesus, just like he's done for you. Maybe you get discouraged as you read through those newspapers, and you know those opinion pieces putting Christians down, and you become downcast as you do the thing no one should ever do. You read through the comments underneath the article, and then there's people calling Christians ignorant and unintelligent and immoral, hateful, and you start to wonder if you're crazy, like all the commenters say. And then you remember that they don't have the words of eternal life. Jesus does. And you pray that the Father might drag those precious souls behind those keyboards to Jesus. Or maybe as you walked into work this week, you were bombarded with those rainbow flags and everything with world pride looks so bright and colourful and happy and you wonder, maybe I'm being too narrow-minded to believe what the Bible says here. And you know the crowd at work rejects Jesus' words and you're tempted to do the same. And then you remember that even though they might dress it up bright for a few weeks and it looks so lively, they don't have the words of eternal life. Jesus does. And you pray the Father might open their eyes to see how dark sin really is and how wonderful Jesus is. So we've seen the crowd rejecting Jesus. We've seen Jesus reinforcing his offer of life. And we've seen that the Father reigns in salvation. Let's pray we would remember these truths, especially when we face rejection. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you so much for these wonderful words of Jesus. We thank you that he has the words of eternal life, that eating his flesh, drinking his blood, coming to him and believing in him, that is the source of eternal life. Thank you that Jesus gave his body and his blood for us. And Lord, when we are rejected by the world, help us to remember that they don't have the words of eternal life. Jesus does. And help us to trust you with our salvation and the salvation of others. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're also 